Well, let me welcome you into uh, week number two of our six-week journey, uh, highlighting, hitting some mountain peaks uh, study through the book of Genesis. Uh, Last week, last Sunday morning, in the first uh, message in this series, we learned a really important thing together, and we're going to put it on the screen for you. I want you to shout it out with me, just recite this truth out loud with me on both campuses. Here's what we learned last Sunday. God created the universe. Will you say it again if you believe it? God created the universe. He did. God created the universe. Now, of course, as you know, and we discussed it last week, this statement, God created the universe, is in stark contrast to the naturalist view, which teaches that the universe is the result of random, unintelligent causes over the process of billions of years. But we are believers in God's word. We know the Bible is true, right? And so we understand that Genesis chapter one tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. One of the reasons that God created the heavens and the earth, specifically the earth, uh, according to Isaiah 45 and verse 18, is that he made the earth as a place for people to inhabit. In fact, Isaiah 45, 18 says that explicitly. He made the earth to be inhabited. And we read in Genesis last week that God made the earth, uh, the heavens and the earth, in fact, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them, including man, God made us as well, and he did all of this in six days, the six days of creation. Uh, Last Sunday, after service was over, both services, I was approached by more than one person who asked me an an important question, and I didn't address it in the service uh, on purpose because I just didn't have time uh, to deal with everything uh, in the message last week. But the question was asked, do you believe that when the Bible speaks of six days of creation in Genesis, is it speaking of six literal days? six 24-hour days? And my answer to that question is an emphatic yes. I do believe that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. Which brings up the next logical question, doesn't it? And that would be the question of the age of the earth. How old is the earth? And as you might imagine, um, it is at this point, this question of the age of the earth that secular geologists and biblical creation scientists diverge greatly. They give two very, I don't even mean close answers, two very different answers. And I want to begin our study in Genesis 6 today by talking about those two answers for just a minute. Now, I need you to hang with me. I'm going to give you some really important, um, but a little bit complex information here over the next couple of minutes. So if you're up for it, would you shout amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's talk about the age of the earth for just a few minutes. Write this down, if you will. Um, Old earth advocates, and that would be those who believe that the earth is much older than creationists believe. Old earth advocates insist that the earth is about 4 billion years old. 
Old earth advocates insist that the earth is about 4 billion years old. Now, we can agree together that since no one was around to document the formation of the earth, this 4 billion year estimate is just that, right? It's only an estimate. Can we agree? Now, we don't have any written records, any written documents other than the word of God that record for us the formation of the earth. So it's an estimate. And it is an estimate based upon scientific uh, theory. Now, I'm going to give you a word, and this is a big word. I don't want you to glaze over. It's really, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a $6 word, but it's really a, a kind of a, a simple concept. When, when science dates the age of the earth to about 4 billion years, um, scientists are doing so based on a dating method that depends on a concept known as uniformitarianism. There's the word, uniformitarianism. Now, stay with me, stay with me, all right? Some of you just checked out, who cares, all right? Uniformitarianism. Now, essentially, here's what uniformitarianism says. Um, it is the concept that all geological processes, and by that we're talking about things like radioactive decay, we're talking about sedimentation, how sedimentation is deposited in streams and rivers and in valleys, and um, we're, we're talking about how the continental plates move and shift and, and uh, how canyons are carved. And These are geological, these are other geological processes are what we're talking about. Uniformitarianism says, this is the concept that says, that these processes have always occurred at exactly the same rate at which they're occurring today, which is, as you know, a snail's pace rate. And so the concept of uniformitarianism says that if these processes have always happened at the very slow rate at which they're happening now, then all of the geologic formations in the world that, that are very easy to see in places all around the world, like the Grand Canyon and many, 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 really every place all around the world, that the pace at which these things have occurred being so slow and so constant, it would have taken many, many, many millions and even billions of years for these formations to occur. That's the general idea. It happens so slowly, it could not have happened. They, these geologic formations could not have taken shape without that much time passing. Now, that's an oversimplification, but it's the big idea behind the aging of the earth at four billion years. That's what secular science uh, holds to to date the age of the earth. Now, I should tell you that there are many Christians who believe that this is the case. Many Christians who believe in an old earth. Now, here's the problem, and this is a little bit of a struggle that sometimes we have because, because what we want to do is say that, that the Word of God is the basis of all knowledge. And so when I study any discipline in the sciences, then I need to understand them in light of the Word of God. I begin with God's Word and, and then understand science uh, because silent science comes from the root word for knowledge, right? And all knowledge proceeds from God. And so I want to understand science and my world through the lens of God's Word. What happens oftentimes is we say, well, science says this. That seems to contradict God's Word, so I need to now find how God's word can fit into the scientific 
view. That happens really very, very frequently. So a lot of, a lot of Christians believe in an old earth. Um, sometimes we take this view or we think that uh, this could be possible because of some theories of application that we, we try to, 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 in my opinion, force onto the scripture. One of those would be the, what's called the day-age theory. Here's the, this is the theory that says when the Bible says that God created the earth in six days, it didn't really mean six days. A day meant an age. So a, a day could have been 10 million years. A day could have been 100 million years. It was, it was God creating through the process of evolution, the, the uh, day-age theory. There's another theory called the gap theory, which many of you might be familiar with. This is the belief that there is a span of time, a great gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, maybe even millions of years uh, that, that are inserted in those two verses. These are two theories that Christians adopt to say, uh, well, the Bible, I still believe the Bible and believe that the earth is 4 billion years old. Now, there is, another, there is another way to view the earth, and that's the young earth uh, belief. And so write this down. The young earth advocates insist that the earth is about 6,000 years old. So it's a pretty divergent answer, don't you agree? 4 billion years versus 6,000 years. Uh, young earth advocates insist that the earth is about 6,000 years old. And this idea of a young earth is based largely on the belief uh, that when the Bible says God created the earth in six days, it means six literal, six 24-hour days of creation. That's what I believe. Why do I believe that? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is because the word in Genesis chapter 1 that's translated day, the Hebrew word that's translated in the English day, is not an obscure word. It's used in the Old Testament over 2,100 times. Over and over and over it's used. And 90, about 98% of the time, you know what it means? It means a day. So the overwhelming preponderance of the usage of this word in, in Holy Scripture is that it means a 24-hour day. It just doesn't then fit to say, well, in this case, it must mean something different because scientists think the earth must be much older. So, so if we're going to interpret the Bible consistently, that would cause us to think it means 24 hours. Um, another reason is because if you go to Genesis 1 and you look at verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 31, which co correspond to all six days, Every one of those verses say, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning. So every day of creation is defined as, as encompassing, as having an evening and a morning. Which seems to imply, doesn't it, a full rotation of the planet over the course of which God was doing that work. Again, the word means what the word says and says what it means. Now, there's one other reason that I think it's so important to believe in a 24-hour in a day when the Bible talks about the days of creation. Let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 20, and listen to the law given by Moses, beginning in verse 9. God says through Moses to the Jewish people, six days shall you labor and do all your work. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a day of rest. It's the Sabbath. Why is this important? Why? Did God impose upon the Jewish people under the law 
This requirement of working only six days and then resting on the seventh. Here's the answer, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, he has hallowed that day. So the very basis of the law which required the Jewish people to only work six days is is based upon the fact that God worked for six days. So God's six days of work is illustrative for his people. Can we agree together? God didn't need six days to create the world. Amen? He could have gone, boom, and it's done, right? He could have done it all in in a moment. And why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? Have you ever thought about it? It's got like, whew, making worlds will wear you out. God doesn't get tired, right? So why did he work six days and then rest on the seventh? To model for his people, I want you to work six days and rest on the seventh. So again, it, it is illustrative of the fact he worked six days to illustrate the fact that, that uh, under the law they were to work for six days. So, so based upon these evidences and our understanding that God created the earth in six 24-hour days, here's what that means. If y'all are with me, both campuses shout amen. amen. Here's what that means. It means that the earth was created exactly five days before Adam was created because he was created on the sixth day. The earth was created exactly five days before Adam was created. Now that's important because The Bible gives us genealogies both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament which tell us unequivocally that from the time of Adam until the time of Jesus is about 4,000 years. Scripture's clear about that. Adam lived, 4,000 years later Jesus came. And we know that Jesus came approximately 2,000 years ago. 4,000 plus 2,000 is 6,000 years. This is why young earth advocates believe based on the creation story and the time from Adam to Jesus and until today that there have been about 6,000 years since the earth was created. Which, by the way, parallels very interestingly with this fact that the oldest human written history, the oldest documents that we can find out of Egypt, which are the oldest written human history, date back between 5,500 and 6,000 years. Nothing older than that recording human history. Old earth advocates say the earth is about about 4 billion years old. Young earth advocates say the earth is about 6,000 years old. Now, the naturalist is going to say, Pastor, you are crazy. Don't be silly. There is no way that all of the uh, geologic formation that we see on our planet could have occurred in 6,000 years. Even if the pace is quicker, it could not have occurred in 6,000 years unless, what if there was some cataclysmic event that changed the formation of the earth forever. That changed the mountains and the valleys and the landscape and the seas and the land. And what if there was something that happened that could make all that we see in the earth possible? Well, as Bible believers, we know what that event was that caused these things. 
It is the flood of Genesis chapter number 6. We call it Noah's flood. I'm going to read beginning in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5. You follow along as I read. If you're doing okay, if you're still with me, shout amen. amen. All right, here we go. Genesis 6 and verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can I get a witness? Anybody in the room glad you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice, God doesn't just say, I'm going to destroy mankind. He says, I am going to destroy mankind and the earth. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shall you make in the ark. You shall pitch it within uh, and without with pitch or with a tar. This is the fashion you shall make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 Cubits. It's about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit you shall finish it above, and the door of the ark shall you set in the side thereof. With lower and second and third stories shall you make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh." wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall you bring into the ark. To keep them alive with thee, they shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind and cattle after their kind, of creeping things of the earth after his kind. To of every sort shall come with thee to keep them alive. You shall take unto thee of all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it uh, to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him so did he. Skip to chapter, 11, uh, chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, that same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. 
And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on that day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, of all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. They went in unto the ark, in, uh, unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark, and the ark was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters." And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits, or 22 feet upward, did the waters prevail so that the mountains were covered. Now, I might just stop and note, there was no high ground. There was no getting to high ground. All the high ground was covered with at least 22 feet of water. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. All of, uh, of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth and Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. This is the word of the Lord. So here you have in uh, really chapter 6 through chapter 9, we've only read a small portion of that, you have the, uh, uh, the biblical account of Noah's flood. Uh, which, by the way, I believe this account to be uh, supported by geologic evidence all around the world. But that aside, what does the Bible text, simply looking at the scripture, what does it tell us about God, his character, and what happened uh, in the flood of Noah? Write this down somewhere in your notes. I, I think you should, should notice the fact that the flood teaches us that God is not indifferent to our sinful rebellion. God is, God is not indifferent to the sinful rebellion of mankind. You know, I think sometimes we think we can live absent the view of God. That God doesn't really mind. He doesn't really care. He's not really interested. In fact, he's got a world to run. Why should God care about the little things that I do? But the Bible teaches us in the, in the flood of Noah that God is not indifferent to our sin. He's not indifferent to our rebellion. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5 says that God saw and God saw. He's watching. His eyes behold. He sees the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil Continually. Here's what God knows. God knows it to be true about every one of us. And when we're honest, we would have to agree with this. God knows that the human heart tends toward evil. It does. It tends toward evil. Now, that doesn't mean that a human being 
unsaved, unregenerate, cannot be a good person and do good things. As we learned last week, we're all created in the image of God. We have a free will. We certainly can do good things. But we tend toward evil. This is what the Bible says. Even sometimes when we do the right thing, doing the right thing is motivated sometimes for self-gain or selfish uh, uh, ends. God knows this about us. He knows our hearts. Jeremiah declared this. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 19, Jerem, or verse 9, Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Have you ever heard anybody say, hey, just follow your heart? You say, I don't know what to do about this thing. I, I'm really trying to decide. I, I, I want to do, I, wanna, I don't know if I should go to the right or the left, if I should do A or do B. What should I do? Have you ever heard anybody say, just follow your heart? You ever heard anybody say that? That is dumb advice, all right? That is bad advice. Don't follow your heart. Follow your Bible, amen? Follow the Word of God because your heart is wicked. It's born that way. He says, Jeremiah says, we can't even understand it. This is the reason the psalmist prayed in Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O, o Lord my God, uh, my strength and my redeemer. So, God, I want my actions to be right. I want the, the words I speak to be right. But, God, I don't even, I don't even know my heart. God, I want the meditations of my heart to be right. So God sees our, our hearts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motivations. He also sees our actions. He sees what we do. By the way, what we do always flows out of the heart, right? What the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, uh, the, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, uh, the issues of life come forth. And so he sees our hearts, but he also sees our actions. Look at verse number five. God saw the wickedness of man in the earth. Now, by the way, you'll remember that prior to Genesis 3, there was no wickedness in the earth. Man was created in the image of God, in sinless perfection, Adam and Eve lived. But when they sinned, sin entered into the world, and that sin began to creep down through the generations. And in fact, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all the way down until today. This is the reason the earth is filled with sin. None of us would argue this point, would we? None of us would argue that we live in a broken, vile, evil world. Sure we do. And God sees it and he knows it all. Verse 5, it's not a little bit of wickedness. He sees the, the greatness of the wickedness in the earth. Verse number 11 says that the earth was corrupt. Uh, the word means spoiled. It's, it's decayed. The earth created in such perfection is now spoil. Uh, you've probably done what I have. You, you don't let your wife see you do this. Drink out of the milk jug. You ever do that? Open the door, drink, get the milk jug and drink it. Uh, yeah, I do that sometimes. I slip and do it without looking at the date. You know, I'm just, just chugging and, and the judgment of God for such is when the milk spoils. <laughs> and you say, oh, it's terrible. Well, God looks at the world and it ought to be fresh and wholesome and beautiful and yet it's not. It's spoiled. This is what it means in verse 11 when he says it's corrupt. It's filled with violence. It's filled with malice. Verse number 12 of Genesis 6 says that all flesh has corrupted. So, so the point is, this, this reality of the flood tells us that God is not indifferent. Um, he sees what goes on in this world. 
And in Genesis chapter number 6, it says that God was sorry. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 6. Have you ever seen such a statement? It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Now, now this statement says that when God looked at the condition of the earth in Noah's day, he said, what a train wreck. How could it have gotten so bad? I wish I'd never done this. I mean, I wish this, this, th- these people hadn't even been created. Now, that would get us into a theological debate about God changing his mind and God regretting and that sort of thing, and that's for another day and, and somebody smarter than me. But I just know what the text says. The text says that God was sorry. It grieved him that he had even made man. So, because of God's great displeasure with the condition of humanity... He made a perfectly righteous and just decision. God determined that he would judge this rebellious world. Verse number seven, the Lord said to Noah, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. I will destroy man. Look at verse 17, chapter six and verse number 17. And behold, I, even I, Noah, just in case, you, I don't want you to think this is a natural occurrence, a natural, a natural disaster. I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. So this is the plan of God. He sees the corruption. He sees the malice and violence. He sees the spoiled and corrupt condition of, of all men and the, and the evil hearts of all men, the evil actions of all men. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over. I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to bring a flood. So he does. Now, I might take just a minute and talk about the flood for a minute. Look at chapter number seven. We read it a moment ago. Chapter seven, verse number 11. Let's think for a minute about how the flood occurred, because I think that most of us think about the flood incorrectly. I think most of us think that the flood of Noah's day was just a really bad rainstorm. I really do. Heard a story once about a guy who drowned in a flood, got to heaven, and uh, somebody said, hey, how'd you get up here? He said, man, it's the worst flood ever. You're just not going to even believe it. It's terrible. Water's rising, rivers cresting. It was was terrible. I drowned in the flood. Never been anything like it. And he heard an old man next to him go, phew. (laughs) said, who's that? Noah, don't bother. Don't don't worry about him. So so, I don't know why I told that story. But anyway, we, we think of the flood as being this rainstorm. And yet, the Bible teaches us that the flood was a global catastrophe. When Jesus spoke of the flood in Matthew and in Luke, he called it a global cataclysm. It's not just rain falling from heaven. It is a global cataclysm. Upheaval. Now, I want to take you back to Genesis 1. I know we were there last week, but really, go back for just a minute. Go to Genesis 1 and verse number 2, and I want you to really think through creation. Look at Genesis 1 and verse 2. It says, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here's what verse 2 tells you, that in the beginning of the creation of the earth, It was covered, the earth was covered completely in water. No dry land, completely covered in water. That's what verse 2 says. The Bible then tells us that God separated the waters. Look at verse 6. On day 2 of creation, God said, Let there be a firmament, an expanse, 
in the midst of the waters. And so you have this this water, God then creates an expanse. He slices the water, separates the water, and creates an expanse between the waters. This is on day two. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, or the sky that we look up into. So what what creation tells us, what the creation account tells us, is that the earth began as water, God then separated the waters, created the heavens, created the sky. The earth is still just water. Now you have this separated water, a water vapor barrier, if you will, all around the planet separated by our atmosphere. That's day two of creation. Then look at verse number nine. On day three of creation, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. Everybody look up here. How many places? One place. Day three of creation, God said, we got waters above the sky now, waters under the sky. God said, take all the waters under the sky, all the waters on the planet, pull them together to one place. That's verse number nine. Uh, Verse number nine, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called the seas. Now here's what, here's what day three of creation would tell us. It appears, there's no evidence biblically that it's other than this, that God took this watery planet, then caused the earth or the dry land to rise out of the water, gathered all of the waters into one place, and the land was in one place. Not multiple continents, but one supercontinent. Which, by the way, geologists will tell you that millions, billions of years ago, there was one continent, a supercontinent. And so God's creation was all the water in one place and the, and the dry land in one place. That's what the creation looked like. That would have been the world in which Adam lived and his descendants. Until you come to Genesis chapter number 7. And in Genesis 7 and verse 11, then the flood occurs. And how does it occur? Is it just a bad rainstorm? Look at chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up. No, the first water that came to flood the earth didn't come from the sky. It came from the earth. And God come, came uh, sending, or God sent that great, those great fountains bursting up through the earth. Creation scientists believe it was this breaking forth of the great deep, the fountains of the great deep, that caused the breaking apart of the planets, not the planets, of the continent. And so the formation of the continents. This upheaval would have then caused the formation of the great mountain ranges and the deep seas and the earth taking the shape as we know it to be today. Not over millions and millions and millions of years, but in one year as the earth was flooded and then the waters began to recede. Secondly, chapter 7 verse 11 says, that the windows of heaven were opened and it began to rain. Not just a storm cloud coming over, but where did the waters come from that rained down upon the earth? You remember in Genesis 1, on the second day of creation, God divided the waters and put above the sky waters. 
And then in the flood, I believe, and creation scientists will, will tell you that that is the water that then flooded the earth. And so that water came to the earth. It now has stayed on the earth and has filled all of the seas around the world. Now, this is what creation teaches. It's what the flood account tells us, the breaking forth of the great deep, uh, the fountains of the deep, and then the falling of such great amounts of water from heaven. Now, it changed everything, by the way. This flood did. Of course, it changed everything. It wasn't just a rainstorm. It destroyed the earth. You remember back in the, in the text we were reading a moment ago, God said, I will destroy them. It's in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 13. I will destroy them with the earth. In other words, I'm going to remake the earth. I'm going to destroy the earth as you know it. And in fact, the New Testament uh, affirms this. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 6 says, and that by means of these waters, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter says that the original created world perished in the flood. Genesis 6.13 says God destroyed that earth in the flood. So the world as it was known prior to the flood is totally remade into the world that we see today. It changed the earth's geography. It changed the earth's atmosphere. 2 Peter 3, uh, 6 speaks of the, uh, the heavens that now are being different in, in constitution than the heavens that were then. It also changed the span of human life. You recognize this, don't you? That following the flood, men and women live a much shorter period of time. The Bible's clear from Genesis uh, 1 until Genesis 6, men live on average 900 plus years. It's incredible. Uh, Noah lived 950 years. Methuselah, anybody ever called you Methuselah? They weren't being nice if they did. <laughs> Methuselah lived older, lived longer than anybody in the Bible. 969 years, I believe. But now men don't live that long, right? In fact, it's interesting. Look with me, if you will, at uh, Genesis 6 and verse 3. Listen to what God says. We didn't read this verse. Genesis 6, 3, he says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. His days will be 120 years. People, if, if somebody died at 120 years prior to Genesis 6-3, they were a child dying. I mean, it was, they were so young. He said, yeah, but going forward, that will be the outer limits. And we know now it's even uh, less than that. And so it changed the lifespan of the human family dramatically. Why? Well, I mean, speculation. We don't know for sure. Probably something to do with that atmosphere that has changed, that water vapor barrier being gone, sun rays now uh, coming through and, uh, and breaking down our, our bodies. Um, the diet changed following the flood. Uh, God gave permission and man began to eat meat. Never before the flood did man eat meat. Man was vegetarian before the flood. And uh, so pretty good, pretty good idea. If you want to live a long time, uh, eat a lot of vegetables and don't get in the sun. <laughs> You'll live longer. But here's the point. The flood changed everything. It changed everything. Now, there's one other thing you ought to know about that. And some of you may be asking this question. So, you know, look, Pastor, what was that good? I, I've, got, I've got a life to live, right? And, and what does all of this have to do with me today? Well, here's what you need to know. As, as horrible as this sounds, when we talk about this world and everybody in it finding themselves under the judgment of God, 
and, and this cataclysmic event where the, where the whole earth is being changed and people are dying. As horrible as that sounds, you need to know something. And it's that Jesus said it's going to happen again. Do you know that? Jesus said it's going to happen again. Not with water, but he said it's going to happen again just like that. Matthew chapter 24 verse 37 says, For Jesus is speaking, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. This is Jesus speaking. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So loved ones, here's what I want you to know. In the same way that people mocked the idea of a global flood. Imagine Noah for all those years building this massive boat, which by the way, by all estimates of people who understand shipbuilding, this was a very seaworthy vessel based on its, its construction and its dimensions. Imagine all the people in Noah's day mocking him, believing that a flood was coming. The Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness, that, that his life preached to those who were going to perish, but they didn't believe him. It might be that you're here today, and in your heart, even as I'm speaking, reading these things to you from, from Scripture, you're saying, that's the foolish, most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. I've never believed that. How crazy is that? Know this, that Jesus said that in the days before his coming, people would mock in the same ways they did before Noah came, uh, in the days of Noah. Until suddenly it happened. And it was too late. And what is true globally is also true personally. It's also true individually. God sees our sin. He knows our hearts. And judgment is sure if we reject his grace. So what does the flood teach us about God? It teaches us that he is not indifferent to our sinful Rebellion. There's something else, though, I want you to know about God, and it is this. It is that God is not merciless in his judgment. Sure, ju judgment is part of the righteous uh, attributes of God, his carrying out judgment upon sin, but his judgment is tempered by his mercy. He, he is a merciful God. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 says, graciously that, or mercifully, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what did that grace look like? It looked like exactly what it looks like for you and me. Here's what it looked like. Here's the grace of God to Noah. When Noah found grace in God's eyes, here's what God did. God warned him of impending judgment. That was it. God said, Noah, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to punish the earth. I'm going to destroy life from off the earth. It was a word of warning. Listen to me. You sit here today under that same grace that Noah experienced. You have been given a word of warning that God's judgment is real, that God is not indifferent to our sin, that God will judge sin. I have come today to warn you there's a flood of judgment coming to your life and to this world if you reject God's grace. And the fact that you even hear me say that is the grace of God. It's his mercy to you. And he didn't just give him a warning he gave him an out. He gave him a way. He entered into a covenant with him. He said, you are going to come into the ark with me. Chapter 6 and verse number 18. I'll make a covenant with you. You build an ark. You come into the ark. And I will keep you safe in the flood. This is the same offer he extends to you today. This is it. It's no different. The ark 
of Genesis 6 is a beautiful illustration, very real, very actual, very literal, but a beautiful illustration of the ark of grace that every single person is offered. The ark is Jesus. And we understand that God sees and knows our sin. And we recognize that God is holy and just and will judge sin. And we see that God is going to bring judgment upon a world which surely has gone corrupt and is spoiled and is vile and full of malice. And God says, here's my warning and here's my ark. Get in the ark. Get in Jesus. And you'll be safe. Why does God even do such? Why does God do that? He doesn't have to. But he does it because he is merciful. He's gracious. And then lastly, I would just encourage all of us by looking to chapter 8 very quickly to realize that there is a new world that awaits those who trust in Christ. You know, if you can imagine, we, we best you can tell piecing together all the different bits of information in Genesis 6 through 9 about how long they were on the ark before it started raining, how long it rained, how long the water took to abate and drain into the valleys and into the oceans and until they were able to come off the ark. It's about a year, give or take a few days, about a year. You imagine being on that boat for a year? And uh, I've been on a cruise ship for seven days. That was long enough for me. And this was no Caribbean cruise. By the way, um, people have done uh, measurements of the, of the cubic volume of that ark, how much cargo it would carry. The estimate is that it would carry more than 200 uh, modern-day train boxcars and that it would have been large enough to have stored all of the food needs for that year, and all of the animals in their cages in about uh, a third of the space provided within the ark, leaving two-thirds of that space for Noah and his family and for whatever might have needed to happen, exercising the animals or whatever, plenty big enough. But can you imagine the joy after being on that boat for a year when suddenly the land begins to dry around you and God says, and he says this, by the way, in chapter number Eight, verse 13 down through verse number 19. Look at it. He says, come off the boat. And Noah had to be like, yes! <laughs> Terra firma, dry ground. I'm glad to be on solid ground. What a, what a new hope he must have had. A, a whole new world lay before him. And God said, now multiply and replenish the earth. There's so much hope for Noah. I want, you, I want to tell you something. There's so much hope for you when you come to Jesus. Amen. And it's holding you life. Say, Pastor, you know, when I read Genesis 6 and I read about sin, I read about an evil heart and I read about malice and I read about a heart tending toward wrong things. And when I read about God judging, I could go, I deserve it. That's me. But if you'll get in the ark, I want to tell you, there's such a new life awaiting you. There's such a new hope for you. There's not only new hope, there's new worship. The Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse number 21, that Noah took some of those clean animals. You, you may know that he took more than two of each of the clean animals, only two of each of the unclean animals. Why did he take more clean animals? Because when he got off the ark, those extras were offered as sacrifices to God. 
He offered those sacrifices. In chapter 8, verse 21, tells us that when God made, or when Noah made these sacrifices, look at verse 21, it says, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. God smelled a sweet aroma when that was made. It's the first time that the Bible says that from a sacrifice, it wasn't the first sacrifice made, but it was the first time that God says from that sacrifice, I smell a sweet savor. That's pleasing to me. The ark is such a beautiful type of Jesus. And the Bible says that through the sacrifice of Jesus, that his sacrifice is a sweet savor, a sweet aroma to God. There's a new worship. When you enter into Christ, there is a worship experience with Christ that we get to engage, encounter with God on a level of intimacy that we can never know prior to trusting in Christ. New hope, new worship, and then a new promise. And this is the rainbow, as many of you know, the rainbow promise. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, God said, I'm not going to do it again, at least not with water. As long as man is on the earth, I'm going to be patient until that final day of judgment. Never again will I send the flood upon the earth. And to, to, to show you my promise, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. And you know what the rainbow essentially says? It says, in a world full of broke." if y'all are listening, say amen. Here's what the rainbow says. In a world full of brokenness and sin, in a world full of malice and corruption, God says you're safe. As long as you draw breath, I'm never going to send the water to, draw the, to, to take the breath out of your lungs. As long as you draw breath, you're safe. But don't let the day come where you die or where I return. Because then judgment's coming. But as long as you draw breath, you're safe. I'm going to put my rainbow. Every time it rains, don't go, oh no, here it comes again. No, here's my rainbow. I'm going to promise you I'll never do it again. And this is the gospel. That God is merciful. God is patient with us. God is holding us safe, giving us time to repent and to trust in Jesus. And by the way, do you know this is the message of the church? Amen? And this is the message of Brookstone. Uh, it was only about a week after we moved in to our new building a couple of years ago that uh, Tracy and I drove up here uh, one Saturday afternoon. And it had been raining. And as we, as we drove up to this new campus, uh, I want to show you a picture of what we saw. This was, uh, this was over the church. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the ministry of this church. It is the ministry of the hope of the patience and kindness and mercy of Almighty God. And it's not raining this morning, and I doubt if there's a literal rainbow over our church right now or over that Merriman campus, but there is a rainbow of grace over you because you're sitting here hearing his message. And I hope you'll get into the ark right now. Let's pray together.